My name is Derek, and uh, today we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 27. It's in the New Testament after the four Gospels. We are in this series called The Life of Paul, and um, we've been looking through the book of Acts, and we've got one more week to go because Acts is only 28 chapters long. So if you have your Bible, um, which I encourage you to get in the habit of bringing your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts 27. You'll find most of the verses on the back of your bulletin on your outline. Let me just um, bring you up to speed if maybe you're trying to get your bearing on where we are with respect to Paul's life at this point in the story. So Paul is this guy. Um, he was a Jew, and he, was, he went from killing Christians, literally, to um, had this incredible experience with God, and then he, he's going around starting churches all over the Roman Empire, and that's what he spent the, the most of his adult life doing. And so he's traveling all around, starting all these churches, and encountering a lot of opposition because he'd go right into the synagogues with his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, and, and he would talk all about Jesus Christ, and it was, it was crazy. And so he was on the run constantly in different cities. So at this point in the story, Paul has felt a clear... Uh, sense from God that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem, which is the heart of the Jewish faith, Jerusalem. And so he gets to Jerusalem, and of course there's a firestorm of controversy, and Paul gets arrested, and he stands before all of these different Roman leaders, because the Romans ruled over the Jews, okay? So he's before all these different Roman leaders, and finally they say, you're a Roman citizen, Paul, and you're Jewish, what, what are we going to do with you? And so finally, they, they're like, you need to go, and you need to stand trial before Caesar, before the emperor in Rome. And so uh, I have a map up here that I think we can, we can show. Um, so, so basically Paul starts out here in, where, in Acts 27 in, in Jerusalem. He's actually um, in Caesarea more specifically where they begin this voyage. This is a killer story today. Acts 27. It's pretty cool. And so um, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and, and kind of show you how, where the voyage goes, and um, we'll, we'll go from there. But before we get started, if you guys would join me, let's ask God to help us. God, um, we thank you for allowing us to be here this morning, and we just pray that you would have something for each one of us, that you would speak to each one of us this morning as we open your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So it says that when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, and just so you know, the we, the guy who's writing in the first person there is Luke, who traveled a lot of the time with Paul. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote Acts. So it says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion, a Roman centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, which is right here. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. So the, the lee there, what that means is essentially there's the windward side and there's the leeward side. And because of the winds were against them, the winds were blowing from west to east apparently because they passed on, on this side of the island of Cyprus and on the east side to kind of get a little bit of shelter and protection from the wind. And it says, when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, 
we landed at Myra. See, they've made it all the way up here now in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We find out later in the passage there were 276 people on board. Gives you the sense of the size of the ship that would have been sailing. So it says, from there, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete. So they were hoping to sail this way. And instead, the wind was so strong that they had to set, sail once again to get a little uh, land protection on the leeward side of Crete. And, uh, and it says opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens. It's that little dot right there in the middle of Crete on the south side. And it says um, it was near the coast of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So just so you know what that means, it's about A.D. 60 or so, roughly. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Day of Atonement would fall late September or early October. This was not a good time. Once the Day of Atonement had, had hit, it was not a good time to be sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. You had many, many hurricane-type storms that would come through that area. Okay? So it says... Paul warned them, now in verse 10, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our own lives also. See, Paul has been shipwrecked before. He's done many, many, many voyages at this point, and so he's given them a warning. But it says the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, he followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, to spend the winter there, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix, which is on the other side of that island, and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. What that means is that this harbor um, would, would have more protection from the wind and from storms that would come through. So they wanted to try and push on uh, because Fair Havens was a little bit more exposed um, they ignored the advice of Paul. So the whole point of these first 12 verses is just to set the stage for you so that you understand that so far they've had such trouble that they've already had to shift their course and go a long way and spend extra days because they've just been fighting the wind, they've been fighting the elements, they're in a bad time of the year to, to be sailing. And so you can kind of see where this story is going, okay? Verse 13. It says, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Give you a little visual to kind of set the stage here. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster. This is no small storm. This is a huge deal. Swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and couldn't head into the wind. So we gave way to it, and we were driven along. you got to remember, this is just a sail, sail ship. There's no motor, no anything like that. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. They passed ropes under the ship to hold it together. Now, in case you were wondering, when they're, if you're on a ship and they're starting to pass ropes like all the way around the ship to, to hold that thing together, that's not a good sign, Okay. It's time for you to make alternate plans at that point. 
because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. And Luke writes in verse 18, he says, We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Again, not a good sign. If you see people throwing cargo overboard, that's not good, okay? On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now you're like, what's the ship's tackle? Well, if you go back to the, the Greek word, it's a word that, that could be used and translated in different ways. Okay, so we're not exactly sure. Uh, you know, it could mean the anchor, but that doesn't really make sense. Um, so what did they throw over? Well, it has to do, generally speaking, with parts of equipment that would belong to the ship, like stuff that you would really need, you know, so... They're even throwing over parts. They're like, we can get away without this, this, this piece of the ship. Let's just throw this overboard. They were in a total panic at this point. It says, verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, so then they would have no sense of where they were, no navigation. Okay? When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. It's a completely desperate situation. You've got this tremendous storm that's going, tying ropes around the ship to hold it together, throwing over everything that they could to lighten the ship and and hopefully give them a chance of surviving. But basically, they said, nobody had any hope. They thought they were goners. It's with this, at this point in the story, that Paul speaks in verse 21. It says, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and he said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. So here is this ship, completely hopeless. Everybody is freaking out. They all think they're going to die. And here Paul stands up and he goes, I told you so. Now, is that helpful? Is there anybody in this room... It enjoys it when someone says to you, I told you so. Is there anybody? Okay, this is like a universal truth. Nobody likes to be said, to be told, I told you so. So what in the world is Paul doing? That's the question. This past week, um, I had a long-time plumbing issue resolved in my house. I had a professional plumber come out and run a new plumbing line from my kitchen sink out of my house. And uh, if you've been coming to Grace for some time, you might have been here this Sunday that I talked about when I tried to do it myself the first time. So uh, my kitchen sink had been uh, backing up. It, it runs down into my basement, and there's kind of this low spot under the concrete floor where it, you know, a bunch of stuff accumulates, like grease and stuff like that. It hardens, and so the, the, it would get backed up, and I had to get plumber out to snake it and stuff like that. And so it was maybe, I don't know, six months ago or whatever that um, we had the same issue, and it was, the floor drain was backing up, and the sewage was coming into our basement. It was really disgusting. And so, but this time, I thought, you know, why call a plumber and go through that whole deal and, and the expense of that when I could just rent one of those motorized snakes you know, from the tool store and just do it myself. Just get the guy to show me how to turn it on and how to use it and and we'll be good. So I rent this motorized snake and um, I get one that's got like a 75-foot snake on it that goes through your drain and, you know, knocks out the clog or whatever. 
So I crank that thing up, and I get it going, and I run it down into my floor drain in my basement. And um, I get maybe like 70 feet in. I got like five feet of snake left to go. And I feel something like it's catching. You know, it's catching on something. I'm like, oh, I've got it, you know. I, this, this is it. So I'm working it, and I'm really trying to get that snake, and I can't get it, and I feel, oh, this must be the clog. This must be the, the issue, you know. So I'm really going, and finally, I, I kind of get through, and I get the last five feet through, and I'm, you know, and I'm like, okay, I've got this thing. I'm, I'm so excited. So I, I flip the thing into reverse, and, and we're going to pull this thing out now. And I go to pull it out, and, and it's, just, it's just so much easier than when I brought it in. In fact, it was just like, it was so simple. And I just pull this thing out. I'm like, this is awesome. I definitely must have cleared this clog. So I go to pull it out, and I pull it, and I hold, and, and I've only got three feet of snake. And it's just broken off right here. The other 72 feet was way down into my drain line. Uh, I couldn't see the end of the snake because it had snapped off three feet down into my, underneath my concrete slab in my basement. At that moment, I went from complete euphoria thinking I had done this and I had gotten rid of the clog to all of a sudden the dollar signs in my brain were going, Jack Herman, the floor, get the snake out, you know, like how much is this going to cost? After I went through that thought process in my head, okay, the next thought in my mind was actually, it wasn't so much a thought in my mind, it was words that I could hear in my ears. Okay, I was all alone in the house, okay, everyone was gone, it's just me. But these are the words. I could clearly hear them. I told you we should have called that plumber. I told you we should have called that plumber. I told you we should have called that plumber. Because you see, my wife and I, before I got the snake, we had had an ongoing, um, what's the word, conversation about whether we should get the snake or whether we should just call out a professional plumber to do the job. And I was like, oh, no. And but to, to her credit, my wife never once told me, I told you so. But I heard her. She was saying it. She got, it was cool because she like gets props for not saying it, but she still was saying it because it was in my brain. I could hear her saying it. Here's the thing. So nobody likes this, right? Not one person in this room likes it. So that's just a good mental note. If you like to tell people I told you so, they don't really like it. Okay? Not helpful. So what's Paul doing? What's going on here? Why does he bother saying this? What's it in the Bible for? I thought Paul was some great Christian. Why, what's he doing saying this? Here's why Paul's saying this. Paul is ticked off. He's furious. He's like, man, I've been shipwrecked before. I told you guys. I've told you that this was going to happen. And he just can't help himself. He is just lost in the moment. He's emotionally, he's just going off. He's just like, you know what? I told you. You guys are a bunch of idiots, man. Why did you do this? Okay. And this is actually what I love about the Bible, right here. Th- this little verse is what I love about the Bible. Because you see, we can get this idea if we don't really actually read the Bible, but we just hear things about it, or we have this, and so this is God's holy word. And so all the people who are in this, in this Bible, they must have all been like super Christian, perfect, you know, doing everything, just holy people. That's not it at all, you guys. I mean, it's not just here that we see Paul struggling and, 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 and whatnot. I mean, and, and you, talk, you look at the disciples. I mean, oh my goodness. And then you look, at, you look at everyone, all the people that were in the Bible, aside from Jesus Christ. And what you find is that they lack faith, they're confused, they're impulsive, they do the wrong things, they struggle, they doubt. 
And it makes me feel a whole heck of a lot better about myself. You know what I'm saying? That's like, it's one of the great reasons to, to read this thing. You, you start reading, you're like, man, I'm not so bad. These guys are a bunch of idiots. So I, I got to tell you, if you're here this morning and, and you kind of have this mental map of Christianity, what you think that Christianity is all about is that it's a, you know, and church is all about is it's all about being really put together. It's all, you know, it's kind of being free from your sins and your struggles and your bad habits and whatever else. And, you know, you look really, you come in, you look really good. You have it all put together. You say all the right things. And that's kind of the goal of the Christian life. I mean, it's, it's to, to just be this really super holy person. And I, I got to tell you, um, if, if that's kind of your mental map of Christianity, you couldn't actually have it more backwards. Because Christianity essentially upholds that if we strive for this perfect look or this, you know, this, this sense of perfection and holiness, if we strive for that, and that's ultimately the thing, and we think, okay, once we get to that, like, then we're worthy of being in church, we're worthy of God's love, we've totally missed what the essence of the Christian faith is about. You see, what this Bible, the message of it to us is this. There's only one perfect person. Only one, Jesus Christ. All human beings in this are totally flawed and in need of help. Only God is perfect. And so the essence of Christianity is coming to a realization and just saying, wow, we're not perfect. You look at all these guys that we thought, oh, these are the heroes of the faith. No, they weren't perfect either. They just came to a place where they realized and admitted their need for God. When we come to a place and we say, I realize I'm not perfect. I'm coming just as I am, needing your help, God. That's the whole message. That's, that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth, is to live a life that we couldn't live. So that by faith in, in the perfect person, we would be made perfect. That's what it's about. And so that's what I love about the Bible, and I love about this verse. So I think Paul's just ticked off, and he's just being really real. Totally saying something completely unhelpful, okay? But then he redeems himself in verse 22. And he doesn't redeem himself with it really his, out of his own power, but this is a God thing that happens, and so he's just reporting. And he's, look what he says. He says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Remember, this is a totally hopeless situation. They've all given up hope. Even the sailors and, and everyone, all the people who have been doing this their whole lives, they've all given up hope. And he says, not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, Paul says, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So apparently the angel even uh, let Paul know that that's, that's how this would all be resolved and they'd all be saved. So here's the thing. In the midst of this completely hopeless, desperate situation, here is Paul, and after he gets some of his aggression out, he's full of confidence. He's full of hope. He's full of assurance. Why? Because he's heard from God. And I love what this passage tells us about our God. 
The first thing that we see is God's graciousness in this passage. Because Paul didn't, or God didn't just say that he was going to have Paul be miraculously saved. There's 275 other people on this ship. There's other prisoners on there. There's a ton of Roman soldiers. There's a whole, you know what, here's the bottom line. There's a ton of people who basically don't want anything to do with God. Okay, they're, they're doing their own thing. And so God could have just plucked out the one who believed in him. But God says, no, I'm going to save the entire ship. It shows God's graciousness. But even more importantly to me is what it, it tells us about God's heart for us when we're in the midst of a storm. And there are many of us in this room who are in the midst of a storm right now, either in your own life or you have someone who's close to you who's going through a storm and it, it's, it's, a, it's burdening you. You know, so th- there, is, there is a storm that's brewing in your life that's really affecting you. And what this passage reminds us of is, is God's heart toward us when we're in a storm, when we're afraid, when we're hopeless, when we're lost. And what the message there is, you saw it three times in there, God is, is assuring them, you got to keep up your courage. You got to, don't be afraid, be courageous. You're going to make it through. This is fascinating to me. The number one command in the Bible, number one, is do not fear. You think that's coincidence? It's not. The number one command, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Keep up your courage. All right? So there's this clear message that God is giving. When you're in the midst of a storm, don't fear. Be courageous. You're going to make it. Okay? Well, that's great, but here's what, what, where's my brain goes from that one, okay? That's great, God, but that's a lot easier said than done. We're in the middle of a hopeless situation. This is crazy, okay? We all think we're going to die, and we're just being told, don't fear, keep up your courage. Or whatever your storm is, it looks impossible. It looks like there's no way it's going to be overcome. Um, you've been praying about it for years and years and years. You've maybe even given up praying about it. Um, okay, so just don't fear, just, just be courageous. Well, how? What, is that, what does that look like? Well, let's look at verse 25. Paul says, so keep up your courage, men. How? For I have faith in God. So what we see from Paul here is that Paul keeps up his courage by his faith. Okay, so there's this link. We're not going to be afraid. There's this tremendous link. It's got something to do with our faith. But here's the problem with that for me. Okay, faith is so incredibly difficult for me. And here's why. Hebrews 11.1 1 talks about faith. Okay, and it says this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. See, my problem, why faith is such a battle, it's such a struggle for me, is because I'm supposed to be trusting in things and promises and assurances that I can't see. I've never seen God. You know, this stuff is so difficult because it's invisible. And instead, when I'm in the midst of a storm, all I can see is those waves that are keep crashing over the ship or the fact that they just threw all the cargo out of the ship. All I can see is my circumstances and my situation, and I can't see that faith, that, that invisible thing, that trusting in stuff I can't see. That's so hard for me. But yet, here's the thing. Paul had tremendous faith. Tremendous faith. So how did he do it? How did he have this faith? Let's look at verse 25 one more time. I think it 
holds some of the answer. He says, so keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. Now let's zero in on these last few words. That it will happen just as he told me. Paul had tremendous faith because he took God at his word. I want to give you a little simple working definition of faith. Because I think you might find it helpful. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is simply taking God at his word. You know, as we get close to Christmas every year, that's when my kids, who I have three kids, uh, seven years old, five years old, and almost three years old, start just incessantly asking these questions about Santa Claus, okay? They're very concerned that, you know, that, that their presents are going to get where they need to get to and that it's all going to work out. And so, you know, they, the, the questions start coming maybe in about October or November. And, and Becky and I get just barraged with these different questions about Santa Claus. And um, so they'll say things like, okay, well, but we're going to be at grandma's house in Pittsburgh for Christmas. So how the world does Santa know like to deliver the presents to Pittsburgh and grandma's house instead of at our house? Because that would be really bad if he delivered the presents here and how would we get them? And they say, you know, and then what about the, the, the homes and the apartments and stuff that don't have chimneys? Like how does Santa get into to those places? And, and, um, you know, what if it doesn't snow on Christmas Eve? Like, how are they going to land, you know, and how's that going to work? And, you know, are the reindeer still able to fly if it's not snowing? And, um, and then they, they say, like, and, and, you know, this comes from some of the more devious members of my clan, which I'm not going to expose who they are. But um, they say, so how does Santa really know if we've been good or bad? <laughs> and, um, and then... One, one of my kids, I love this. She, she goes, boy, Santa and God must talk a lot. <laughs> Super cute stuff. But so they'll throw these questions out at us, okay? All these questions, they're very, very concerned. You know, you got to get this straightened out. Got to talk to mom or dad and got to figure out these Santa Claus questions, okay? When we answer them, and we answer them very boldly and, and just very confidently, right? You, you know, that's, that's the response that you give. And you, you go through and you, you hammer through these lists of questions. You say, well, this is what it is, and this, this is how it works, and this is this. When we say that, you know what happens? You know what the response is? Now, you've got to remember, my kids are small. So I recognize there will be a day coming soon where the, this response will be completely different when they ask questions and I give them answers, okay? But they'll, they'll go, I'll give them an answer, and they'll go, oh, can I have a snack? I'm hungry. You know, how does this work? Oh, okay. Can we play Candyland? You know, they're just like, and here's the thing. They, they, they just receive it. They hear the answer. They completely accept it. There's no skepticism. There's no pushback. There's no, really, are you sure? Like, how? They, they just say, okay, great. Let's move on to the next thing. Got it. Thank you very much. Here's what hit me this week as I was putting this message together. The way that, my children just take me at my word, why don't I do the same thing with God? Why do I have such a problem taking God at his word? You see, for those of you who guys have been coming to Grace for a while, um, you know me and, and a little bit of my 
style and my and the way that I like to question things. And I really am. I'm 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 very um, skeptical, and I and I, I really you know I like to probe and to be curious and and ask tons of different questions, and I wrestle with all kinds of things. And I'm just not one of those people that just says, okay, great, and I just accept it. I, I, I really, really struggle with that. And uh, it's actually, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, because I know there's a number of you guys that are exactly the same. Um, you know, you, you're, you're, you're like, I've got to figure this thing out, and this doesn't really make sense, and how does this work? And that's one of the things I absolutely love about Grace Community Church. That's what I love about this place. This is a place where if you have questions and doubts and struggles, we encourage you to voice those. That's what's supposed to happen in these community group meetings that we have, is where you throw this stuff out and say, this doesn't make sense. I don't get this stuff. And you don't get some five-cent answer to your million-dollar question or struggle that you have, right? That's what I love about grace. And so you've got to hear me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't question and wrestle and doubt and, and have a little, you know, tinge of cynicism to, you know, when, when you're studying this stuff. That's a healthy thing. In fact, for me, that was what reignited my and, and strengthened my faith in the end because once you question and, you, and you're really wrestling and then you start to grapple and find some answers and, and get some stuff resolved, it reaffirms your faith even more strongly than before, okay? So if you're here, maybe this is, you know, you just started coming to grace. I'm not saying that you shouldn't question. I actually encourage you to do that. Okay, that's the kind of church that this is. But, at least for me, I find I can get to a place where I've questioned and questioned and questioned and pushed back and struggled and kind of disagreed and said, eh, I'm not really sure about that. And I've done it to the point where I've gathered about as much information as I'm going to gather this side of heaven, okay? I've, I've pretty much got as much of the data download as I can. And there's certain things that I just have to kind of, say, you know, I'm not going to get every piece of this worked through. There's certain things that I'm just going to have to chalk up to the fact that God, as his word says, is a divine mystery. And so you can actually get to the place, and this is where I get to in my, in my faith, is you get to a place where if you question too much and over and over and over and constantly, like where that's your, just your normal mode of operating, where you can start to spin your wheels. You, you, questioning gives you traction to a certain point and gets you a certain level, but then at some point you just spin in your wheels and you're just digging yourself deeper and you're not really getting anywhere. And so what, as I was studying this passage this week, um, it was like God was saying to me, you know, what if you took the next month and you just said, you know what, there are all these questions that you have and this constant thing that you do and and just always kind of not, I'm not in combative mode, you know, with the Bible, but like God just was like saying to me, what if for the next month you just took me at my word? You you just kind of just said, for the next month, just take a little sabbatical from just all the questioning and wrestling and like, I sure, and maybe, you know, just, just get to a place where you say, you know what, God, if it says it for the next month, I'm just gonna do it. If it says it, I'm just going to receive it, even if I don't necessarily agree with it, even if I don't necessarily like it. That's one of the things, you know, that I love to do is like, I like, you know, almost all this, and then there's just a few pieces that I really struggle with, and I would just rather not deal with those. And basically, God was just saying, look, maybe there's a chance, Derek, that, this is kind of what I felt like God was saying, that if you and I 
are not seeing eye to eye on an issue, that maybe there's a chance, Derek, that you could be the one that's not seeing it the right way. <laughs> maybe. I mean, that's bold, God, you know. Really, this goes back to me to something that John said on Easter Sunday at service, where he talked about the importance of realizing that we don't just call Jesus Christ our Savior, but we actually call Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember he talked about, oh, I own you, that whole piece? I didn't like that. You know, that was messing with me. But, but you know, ultimately, it's really tied into this idea that, that because you say so, God, I'm going to do it. Okay? Because you're ultimately God. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the one who probably knows best. And it was like God was saying, just take a little sabbatical from all your crazy questioning. And just, why not just for a month, just try it. So here's what I'm going to throw out to you guys. I know a number of you are just like me in this. And I want to I dare you to try something. I want to dare you to set up a, a, a block of time, okay? Maybe it's just the rest of this day, and that's all you can handle, okay? Maybe some of you are more bold, and you'll, you'll do a week, or you'll do a month, or you'll do the rest of 2012. And you'll say, you know what? I am just going to try and look at this with fresh eyes. And I am just, when there's a promise in there, I'm going to receive that. I'm not going to try and explain that away. Maybe that's not for me, you know, and trying to unpack all what was going on there in that passage. I'm just, I don't want to see something. I'm just going to receive that that promise of God. When there's a command in there, I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm going to live that out and say, well, I mean, he wasn't really, really talking to me. He was talking to someone 2,000 years ago. You know, just whatever, because you say so, God, I will. I dare you to try that. I dare you to, to set an amount of time and just to, to just take a shot and say, God, I'm just going to take you at your word and I'm just going to receive what you say and I'm going to do, when, when you say, tell me to do something, I'm just going to do it. If you did that, let me ask you something. If you could really receive the promises of Scripture, okay, instead of trying to explain them away, if you would just do what, what the Bible is, is, is saying to do and believe that it was God speaking to you directly, how might that affect your life? I mean, we can think of some things that would be like, oh my gosh, well, I don't want it to affect my life in that way. But think in a, in a different way. In, in a different way. Think about the storms that you face and think about really trusting in some of those promises and receiving some of those words. This is really God speaking to you. Just taking God's word, not trying to explain it away, but just receiving it. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that you have a greater sense of peace and confidence and purpose that things would just go well. For you, it, it, not necessarily with your external circumstances. You might still find yourself on that boat, but that you feel a little bit more assured the way Paul was than maybe the rest of those who were there. Unfortunately, this morning, we don't have time to, uh, to trek all the way through to the end of Acts chapter 27. I am actually going to let you read it on your own because it's, it's a very cool ending the way it happens. Um, and there's a little tool in there, that little white piece of paper that's inside your bulletin. That's a little guide to help you to track through Acts chapter 27, if you'd like to use it. So we're actually going to conclude. I will just tell you that it, it ends as God says it would, but you'll have to read exactly how that breaks down. So what I want to do now is I want us to, to close out our service, and I've got a little something for you guys to do during this last song. So this last song is a song about how awesome God is and how awesome God's love is 
for us. And as this song plays, there are some of you who are here this morning and you have never felt quite worthy of God's love. Like you never really deserve that love. You've never just stopped. There's some of you and, and when you hear this about, oh, God loves you and God loves you unconditionally and no matter what you've done, God loves you. Um, as you hear the words of this song, if you have been fighting that or saying, no, no, that's not me and that can't be me. God doesn't know what I've done. You know, you don't know what's happened to me or what I've done. There's some of you that I just want, as this last song plays, for you just to receive the words, just to take God at his word that he loves you. Just receive it. Now, there's many others of us in this room. And as these words play, and you think about how great God is, I want you to really wrestle with this, this challenge of taking God at his word. Just say, you know what, God, because you say so, I will. I see something in the Bible, a promise, I'm going I'm to receive that promise. I see a command, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go live that out. So during this last song, as we're singing to God, just you and God, just take it up right there. You say, God, I'm going to try this thing. And just make a commitment, you and God, right there for a set amount of time. Just help me, God, to take you at your word. Just to stop fighting and just to take you at your word. And finally, I just want to say this. If you are here today and you feel like you're on that ship and you feel hopeless and you are in the midst of a storm or someone you care about is in the midst of a storm, there's a team of people over here, our prayer team, and they would love to pray for you. So feel free to see them during the song or when the song is over, but don't try and do that on your own. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, for how good you are to us, God, even in the midst of our storms. Help us, God, increase our faith. Help us, especially those who, like me, are chronic questioners, to be able to take you at your word and to receive and to have faith like a child. We thank you so much. And as we sing out this last song, um, visit with each of us. Help us, God, to, um, to just have a dialogue with you and, um, you know, to try and take a step forward to increase our faith or to receive your love or to just plead for help in the midst of our storm once more. In Christ's name.